I always say the biggest lesson was cultural and language differences aside, we're all much more similar than we're led to believe. And it's the similarities which keep us connected and the differences which keep it interesting. And what I really saw in all these places and all these lives is that, you know, despite what you read on the news, like we're all in this together. Andy Stoll is an ideal guest for any dinner party, offering a wealth of entrepreneurial wisdom and captivating tales from his extensive travels. As a senior program officer in entrepreneurship at the Kauffman Foundation, he manages a philanthropic portfolio worth 25 million, all aimed at promoting entrepreneurship and innovation across the United States. Born and raised in Omaha with roots in a small Japanese farming community in Western Nebraska, Andy embarked on a remarkable four-year solo journey around the world, exploring an astonishing 40 countries. Since then, he has founded six companies specifically catered to social entrepreneurs, earning him recognition as one of the leading national voices in how cities can build more vibrant and equitable entrepreneurial communities. With experiences ranging from working in Bollywood and living in a mud hut village in Zambia, to teaching apple pie making on Armenian national television, Andy's life could easily be the subject of a travel documentary. In addition to his entrepreneurial ventures, he's also an accomplished photographer, occasional chef, and cooking class instructor. It's hard to imagine what Andy hasn't done, but we can guarantee that he will bring profound insights and captivating stories to any podcast he appears on. Don't miss out on hearing from this multi-talented entrepreneur on today's episode of Design Of, where we delve into the extraordinary moments and remarkable individuals that shape our world. I'm your host, Justin Ahrens. Enjoy the show. Andy, thank you so much for uh, giving me time and joining the Design Of podcast. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm always excited to engage in conversation with creative folks, and, and you are one of them that has been on my list, so excited to talk more. Well, thank you so much. I mean, we share an amazing mutual friend in, in Dave Gould, amongst others as well, and I'm sure that will come up. But before we start, I can't wait to talk about your current work, your your world travels, and 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 the meaning that I found or are searching for leadership. But but before we start, let's connect on. Let's say I'm not going to say original Andy, young Andy. So Andy, where did you grow up? I'm a Midwestern guy through and through who traveled the world and returned back to the Midwest. I grew up in Omaha, right in the center of the country. And my family is, they're Nebraskans. My my mother is actually Japanese-American and my father's German-American. And they met in college or from small towns and ended up in Omaha. People always find it interesting to know that or to discover that there was a, is still actually was and is still a Japanese farming community in Nebraska of all places, not a place you think of uh, Japanese folks. But part of the family story, which I just always love sharing because it's super interesting, is that my great grandfather came to the United States uh, as a laborer to work on the, I think they were repairing the Transcontinental Railroad and he made his way from San Francisco across the country. The goal is to make money and go back home. Got about halfway across the country said this is bs i don't know if that's what they said at the time this is the early 1900s he was about i think he was about 19 years old he decided he was done with this railroad work and and heard that there was some farming a japanese farming community in, in nebraska so got off the tracks in the nebraska about as far from japan as you could get and and went up and found this group and, and learned how to farm and sent a note home to his parents and said you know i i don't I know I'm supposed to send money and come home, but I, I think I'm going to stay. Could you send me a wife? 
And so my my great grandmother, like who, real, that was real. The, that was okay. All right. Family family arranged marriage, and my great grandma got put on a steamship in Tokyo for the United States again, early 1900s. Got to San Francisco somehow. Got from San Francisco to Nebraska. Met my grandfather, who she had never obviously met before. They got married. They were married for 60, 70 years, and, and built a family, nine kids, and. I think about my own travels, which I know we're going to talk about in a little bit, probably. But imagine you're this, you know, probably late teenage woman from feudal Japan who is told you're going to the United States of America where you don't speak the language or know anyone to marry a man. And I'm, I'm going to put you on this steamship with a note that says where you're supposed to go. And, and you know, what an, what you know, that both what an adventure and what a life. Yeah. I mean, do, do you know, did, uh, I'm not going to assume, but she probably didn't speak English. Did she speak? Oh, she did. She did not. And, and I, you know, I think we can all complain about how all the challenges in our modern world, but I think about this, that was like a 130 years ago and she came, there's no Google maps. There was no Google translate and, and Japanese culture sort of emphasizes this notion of assimilation that as out of respect to the new culture, you're joining, you sort of assimilate. So if you ever go to Japanese communities in most places like there's a lot of Japanese and Argent Argentina and there's more Argentinian than there are Japanese but you know it's kind of the opposite of the way Chinese I think think which is don't assimilate so it's why you have huge Chinatowns and only small sort of Japan towns in most places so she quickly became you know an American she learned English she became Episcopalian she learned how to cook fried chicken and whatever they make in rural Nebraska uh, <laughs> So my family over the course of a hundred years or so really became this kind of mixed mix of American and Japanese, but because the United States limited immigration of Japanese after world after the world wars or, or during and after the world wars, there was no new Japanese coming to America for a long time. And so my family and my family couldn't go back to Japan. So they were very disconnected. And, and so my family is this weird mix of, of sort of, they look Japanese and they're kind of Japanese, but they're way more Nebraskan and Midwestern. And hmm. I think a lot of the themes that come up in my own story really are about that. I mean, thinking about how you become who you are is this notion of bridging cultures and, and blending cultures and, and bringing things together that maybe don't normally come together, which to me is what creativity is. And so there's this theme, if you sort of reverse deconstruct my life that I think my identity as a person of of mixed race and my father is German very very white and I look the way I look which you can't tell in a podcast but sort of Asian is what I say in a place that that there's nobody that except for my brother that looked like me and so a lot of what I've done in my career and a lot of it I think has been to fill that role of the bridger the connector the between person um growing up in a culture where you know I fit in nowhere so then you know, because no one looked like me, I could also seemingly fit in everywhere because I got really good at it because that's just what I had to do. And and I think that's part of the, you know, I appreciate you asking that question because I think it actually leads to a bunch of the other stuff that I've done professionally and that that in be, being comfortable in the in-between space, uh, not just culturally, but but a lot of other ways is sort of one of the things that it, when I was young, I, I didn't want to be different like that, but I realized it's a strength at some point and, be, and really leverage it for, you know, I think a, yeah. a lot of people afterwards. I feel in my own stories, I've, you know, gone through my career, I go back to so many things that happened to me as a child or, or my family of origin. And so much of that has influenced me 
however you want to look at it in a positive way or negative way or just a way. And I think what an incredible story from your background. And when you were younger, were you aware of, of the uniqueness of that? Or do you just like, oh, that's a crazy story from grandma and grandpa, right? And and keep going or? I mean, I was certainly, it was, I knew it was unique because nobody else had that story. But I think the difference, and this applies to, I think, I, I think, I mean, I think applies to a lot of people who are different is, is the lesson for me from all of that is I could either learn to run away for it from it or run towards it to sort of try to hide that part of me or to embrace it. And for, I mean, for a good chunk of my youth, I, I just wanted to not be a mixed race person. I, I mean, truthfully, just because the way our culture works in America, I just want to be white and fit in and not have people ask all these questions. And I mean, culturally, I'm a hundred, I'm very white. I mean, it was the way I talk, but because the way I look to you, it's kind of funny questions or, or, you know, mildly racist comments said to me that made me feel different. But at some point I decided that the difference was an asset and mm-hmm. that what would that difference as seen as an asset help me do that no one else could do on the simple sense. It's really easy to meet me for coffee, especially in Nebraska. Cause I'm like, Oh, I'm the Asian guy in the button down shirt or the, the sort of Asian guy. Cause there's no sort of Asian guys in button down shirts and coffee shops in Omaha. Generally speaking though, that's changing. Yeah. The part that I got really comfortable with was being the person that didn't fit in. And so, and we're going to talk about this in a second, I'm sure. But when I started doing a lot of my global travels and you drop me in some sub-Saharan country in Africa, and I really don't look like the people and every, I mean, people are shouting from across the street that I look different. That didn't actually phase me because it was only a different version of the way I got treated when I was in grade school. And that ability to be okay, not fitting in became a really big strength. I think again, when I was 12, that's not how I thought about it. It's such an intellectual way to think about it at the time. I just like, I just want to fit in. I want to be cool. I want to yeah. look at the other folks, but it ended up really being a, an asset. And when I talked to, especially I do a lot of talking at college and university. As I talked to a lot of kids, young, younger students, and and I know we have our mutual friend, Dave Gould, who brought us together around a college course is a lot of young people and probably a lot of adult people too, just feel like they don't fit in and that, that really flusters them or makes them, they just want to fit in. And, and I would say in a, in a, in an age where standing out is, is, is how you, how you, you know, make a difference, how you uh, sell a product, how you, I mean, whatever the context is that, what would it look like for, for someone who feels like they don't fit in to embrace that they don't fit in and to say, well, not fitting in makes me better at what that was a good early lesson for me that I think it could have gone the other way, which is ran away from it my whole life and, and, and didn't embrace it as an asset, but I was probably my teenage years when I realized like, in addition to helping people find me in coffee shops, uh, there are other val- there. There's a value to it, and it would make me unique and give me a, a distinct sort of value proposition in some of the work that I did ahead. No, that's great. Thank you. That's that's you know, essentially you you talk about a lot of things that you know a variety of youth can relate to, and then we all have different extra dimensions of either socioeconomic challenges or race or or, but there are still a thread of of all of us wanting to fit in at certain periods of our life, right? That can be really challenging. I, I one one quick thought. I, I I speak a lot to college students, and I have a talk that I give that where I talk about being you know basically a kid who didn't fit in, and I've I've given that speech at two hundred and fifty times at colleges and universities across the country. And and what I'll tell you is there was this moment at this school in 
North Carolina. It was a really rural school. And the quarterback of the football team for the school came up to me and he was kind of playing it cool. He was like, he's like, oh, yeah, good, good talk. And I was like, oh, thanks, man. You know, anything in it like connect with you? And he he leans in and he goes, you know, I'm I'm the kid that didn't fit in either. Hmm. And what I realized at that moment was that like if the quarterback of the football team doesn't feel like in high school, doesn't feel like he fits in, like everybody doesn't at some point feel like they fit in. And that that's like a really universal thing, you know, that feeling in that sense. And a lot of my work around community, and we'll talk about that hopefully in a second, is just like, how do you build spaces and places where everyone feels like they 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 have, they, they fit in, they have a place, they're welcome, they're, they have a sense of belonging in those spaces because everyone, regardless, I mean, the quarterback of the football team doesn't feel like he fits in. I mean, uh, to me, that strikes me as this is a chronic challenge and opportunity within our society to try to engage with each other and each other and, and and invite people and welcome people into all sorts of, you know, aspects yeah. of life. Oh, that's great. Well, let's go from Omaha to Iowa city. Why? Sure. Iowa? Yeah. So, you know, the short version of the story is I was graduating from college or from high school. And, you know, they ask you in something like, well, what do you want to, you're going to go to college, but what do you want to major in? So I, so I thought about it for, a hot second and and decided that filmmaking because i sort of an inherently creative person was what i wanted to do and ended up you know looking up all the colleges and that you would study that at usc was the you know harvard law film schools and so i did all the things that you need to do to get into usc which it's sort of ridiculous it's like three essays it's like donate a kidney like <laughs> translates of shakespeare into great, Indian. Great like, epic drama. right yeah I'm doing, it. I'm doing it i did it all um, and then, you know, got in and was super excited about that. You know, it was great also at that age, just like being like, okay, I'm gonna go to USC and then be hanging out with, you know, Steven Spielberg and my whole life set. And then it came to that day where, where it's like national candidate decision day for the big schools, like May 1st, everyone's got to decide where they go. And, and I was all set. And my dad sat down with me like at breakfast that morning. And he said, Andy, today, we're going to decide where you're going to go to college. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to USC dad. I, you know, I'm, I'm my whole life set. I'm going to be hanging out with Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. And, and he said, I remember it a lot. He took a really deep breath, looks at the ground and he says, kind of looks at me and he says, you know, Andy, I, I know you did all that work. You donated a kidney, all that. I don't think we can afford to send you there. And like at that moment, my entire like life plan shattered because that was, you know, and I was, you know, what I was 17 and we, I mean, subsequently what happened was I was so sure and committed to this plan. I didn't have a plan B. I didn't, I didn't have a, a, you didn't a backup, have your backup school. No. And I, I think we have a mutual friend in Nate Staniforth. Nate is oh, yeah. you know, one of his, you know, he quotes that I always think about is he says the problem with plan B is that they work. Uh, and so I was like, am I going to have a plan B? Cause we're going with plan A. And uh, anyway, ended up, you know, pretty late in the game, uh, having to come up with a plan B and the University of Iowa was fairly near to my home uh, and it was affordable and they took applications till June 15th. And so I went through the whole process to do that. And I went and, and you know, was not, it was about as far from Los Angeles and New York where they make movies as you could go to school. And I was pretty miserable for, for a year there, but got really engaged in campus, got reinvolved with some folks. And then, you know, looking back on it, it's probably the you know, pivotal and most pivotal and most important decision, best decision in my life to go there. 
because it was a different kind of place than USC. I mean, I would say probably the equivalent quality of education, but just because it was a smaller school, it wasn't in the middle of Los Angeles. It was just more opportunity to get engaged. And so a bunch of stuff happened in there. But I think the one that was really helped sort of forge, design my life or forge my path is met a group of friends and accidentally started what today you would call a social entrepreneurial incubator. You, we did not have those words it's 20 years ago, where we realized that if we could, that we all knew a bunch of really creative and cool people in our community in different sort of majors and departments, but they didn't know each other. And what would happen if we, we brought them together? And so we're college kids. We don't know how to do much, but we do know how to throw parties. So we started throwing a series of potluck parties, just like every other like college party, cheap beer, box wine. You know, yeah. someone, someone brings a fruit a tray or, a, or like a or like a vegetable tray, which I never figured out. And then someone, you know, someone shows up with a pizza or someone actually cooks. And the only difference between that party and every other party in, in the world of college is that we made everyone get around a circle halfway through the party and introduce themselves. And the question, the prompt was, and tell us your creative endeavor or interest. What are you into? And so I, you know, I'm Andy, I'm into filmmaking. Someone else would be like, my name's Mike. I'm into volunteering. Someone would be like, my name's Ellie. I got a band and I'm looking for a drummer. And then someone would be like, I'm Steve, I'm a drummer and I'm looking for a band. And then they'd start forming bands. And then they'd come back to us and be, hey, we met at your party, we formed this band. We don't know where to play. You seem to know everyone. Do y'all, could y'all help get us a place to play? And and so we we were like, well, yeah, I think we could figure that out. And so we rented a space in the student union and, and put on a, a show where we asked people from the party to come perform for, I think it was like 10 minutes. And we thought, oh, you know, 10 people and their partner, boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, whatever, us, that's 25 people or so. Maybe we should collect $5 at the door and give it to like charity because that seemed right. And that'll be that. And what ended up happening was about 125 people showed up. We raised 100 and like $500, which at the time was astronomical amount of money for the women's shelter. But more importantly, what had happened in the learning was that if you bring people together in this community and you ask them to sort of express their creativity, there's this explosion of energy. And if you can direct that energy back at the community, in our case, in that case, just raising money for a charity, like super interesting things would happen. And so fast forward like four years, that becomes this 501c3 nonprofit called the James Gang, which is actually still around. We just, a bunch of us, the founders went to its 21st birthday party. So it can drink now. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. What's been interesting is 21 years later, it's still doing the same thing. So the idea is that in most communities, uh, there isn't a natural catch for people who have community oriented or creative oriented ideas. And so like, like if you were like, Hey, I want to start a local music festival or like, let's say a, a local food festival. And you like went to the chamber of commerce or like the mayor's office, they'd be like, cool. That's not what we do here. And so in most communities, there isn't a catch for that. And so the James gang, you, you take your idea of a community oriented thing that fosters creativity and, and the James gang doesn't do it for you, but it vets you, it vets your idea and it puts you in a network of other people or, or social entrepreneurs, if you will, who are creating things in the community and the really early insight for us because we were 21 years old and didn't know jack about what we were actually how to help entrepreneurs we realized that if we introduced the founders to each other and try to create a culture that said help each other collaborate dream big try stuff fail get up try again that they would actually do stuff and we didn't have to actually know what to tell them to do and then the second insight was if we could get 
esteemed community leaders, you know, someone like you or Dave Gould or the mayor or the Rotary Club member to also come into that network with a culture of trust, collaboration, you know, help each other dream big, try stuff, fail. That crazy things would emerge from this network and this community and the community itself became the incubator. Mm-hmm. And so there wasn't a physical building. There wasn't like a 90 day program. It was just like the community itself was the incubator and it was the combination of the network and the culture. And so fast forward 20 years, that is now called entrepreneurship or innovation ecosystem building. And it is the strongly held belief of my employer, the Ewing Marion Coffin Foundation. It is the strongly held opinion of the US government now that that is the way you actually build communities in the 21st century. And the traditional way of thinking about it is if you have someone with an idea, you you get them a mentor, you get them money, you get them an accelerator, an incubator. And while that's true, the insight in this notion of ecosystem building is that the environment in which those people exist is as important as the sort of the hard work of the entrepreneur or the capital you give them, but it's the community, the environment, the culture, the networks. And so building these networks, building these communities is really the thing I've been working on for 20, I mean, it's 21 years. But I think when I started, I didn't have those words. That's not what I I didn't set out to say, I'm going to build a new approach to economic development by creating these things. It was more of being an entrepreneur, being a creative, finding the energy that was interesting, following it, playing with it. I think I've started five or six things, for-profit, non-profit businesses around it. And then not until even like when I joined the Coffee Foundation, did I even think about it as like the way communities build their future. But it really has be, it become that. It's been, you know, it's been a fun journey, but also not the straightest line in the world either. That's that's amazing. And it shouldn't be a straight line. The way that you discovered this, the more, you know, sort of messy or creative it is, it feels to be even more true, right, to what you're doing. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that, and the reason I say it, it's not a straight line is I just think when I tell the story in retrospect, it sounds like I had this grand plan when I was 21 years ago to be like, we're going to start this thing and then I'm going to go on and do this thing. And we kind of sort of hear the other steps. It, it's that Steve Jobs quote from that famous, his famous Stanford speech, which was some, like, you can't connect the dot. To, you can connect the dots going backwards, but you can't connect it going forwards. And so you have to sort of trust in your intuition and your and your curiosity and your creativity as you move forward. And I, and I, you know, I'm not the only one that has that kind of story, but sometimes when you hear the story, when I tell it, it just sounds a little bit too easy. And I, I will assure folks that it was, it's, and it's still, we're still in the middle of it. So I don't know even know how it ends. But, evolving. But it's evolving. An evolving emergent story. So at, after Iowa, you took your epic life trip? Sure. Well, the way that, that came about, I was the sort of one of the leaders of the James gang there. And it was in Iowa city. And so somewhere in there, it sort of started in college and somewhere in there and I graduated and it was a real, well, first of all, all these people were telling me I was supposed to get a job. And that just seemed like a, ter- I was, I mean, certainly was an entrepreneur and everyone's like, you gotta go get a job. And I was like, ah, that sounds like a terrible idea. And so I, I really wanted to do social entrepreneurial work as like a full-time profession and figure out how one, one gets, you know, makes a life doing that. And so I was thinking about, you know, the way I say it is I was bright eyed and bushy tailed and wanted to change the world. And maybe some of the listeners can relate to that age and that period where everything is possible, but you also like super naive and you don't know anything really. And so I looked around, which I believe by the way, is part, part of the gift. It is the gift of that period of time. Like if you go to college, like you, you have the ability to go to college and you graduate, like 
that, you know, somewhere between one day and 20 years afterwards is like an amazing period of life where you can like do anything because you don't even know it's not possible and you're fresh and you're new and you've got this, you know, education that'll set you up. And even if you totally bomb it out, if you, I think if, I mean, I personally believe if you have a college degree, like you can work it out anyway. So I graduated and, and had this sort of vision to change the world, but realized I had a really big problem, which is that I wanted to change the world, but didn't have a, a freaking clue how it worked because I'd really only spent my entire life in the classroom. And so I looked around, I thought travel was this, I never left the country as part of it. And so I looked around at all the ways that you can travel when you're 23 and there's lots of them. And from the Peace Corps to volunteering and, you know, Costa Rica and orphanage to, you know, teaching English in Korea. And I couldn't pick one. So I was like, you know what, I'll just, I'll do them all. I'll take a trip around the world because this seemed like a great idea. And as I always say, I, I, I owe the federal government about $25,000 in student loans, um, which if you think about it, is a great reason to leave the country. Yeah. And so I said I saved up money like a normal person for three years. And the goal was at the end of three years, no matter how much money I have, I would go. And so at 26, quit my job, sold everything I owned and bought a backpack and had a one-way ticket to China. And I, I just left. And the goal was to go around the world for a year. And I ended up coming back four years later, lived, worked and traveled in about 40 different countries so had quite the adventure i like how you're trying to wrap that all up with just one sentence we could probably do a whole show about your trip so andy we can't just stop there so i i need to know this is probably a, a, a multi-episode show if we wanted to but share with me a couple of stories that either either left a deep impact that you think about maybe even daily today or shifted the way you see something that has applied meaning to your work today? There are obviously lots of stories to tell from traveling that much. And I think about, there's a couple of stories I would, I would just share just sort of like, what did I learn and what did that, how did that affect me? The first thing that I would say, you know, thinking about how, one designs their life and sort of how they become who they are is the greatest gift of that trip was the space and time to think about who I was and where I fit in the world. I think a lot of people think it's like, oh, you did this walkabout and you went to find yourself. I'm like, well, that's pretty confident where I, who I was, I think at that point, but where I fit in the world and what my, what my place was. And so having the space and time to be able to do that. And I always recommend particularly to young people is is to take, you know, you don't take four years, but take some time after you graduate to, I mean, it's a month, but just to not have to be doing the next thing. And what was really powerful about traveling in that way was that I got to really see, I mean, I traveled 40 countries from sort of like the skyscrapers of of like Jakarta or Singapore to like the dusty corners of like Armenia and I don't know, Australia. Uh, I did all sorts of things to live like the locals. So I lived in a Buddhist temple in Korea. I, I helped a guy open the first cupcake factory in China. They didn't even have a Chinese word for cupcake at the time. That's how early it was. I lived in a, in a Mudhat village in Zambia with a guy who taught me how they farm maize. I mean, I just sort of like live like the locals was the goal. And I, I always say the biggest lesson was cultural and language differences aside, we're all much more similar than we're led to believe. And it's the similarities which keep us connected and the differences which keep it interesting. And what I really saw in all these places and all these lives is that, you know, despite what you read on the news, like we're all in this together. And it's, 
I, you know, recently I've been thinking about this notion that everything touches everything, like it's that we're all connected. And it sounds like really shishi fufu when I say it or really kumbaya, but it really, it really is. And then when you think about cell phones and the connections and, and the internet, how, how actually connected we are. And that experience of seeing the world, feeling how connected and how we're all in this together also led me to this really big insight, at least that's really shaped everything I've done since, which is I traveled from 2006 to 2010 and right in the middle was, you know, the big recession. And at the time, if you remember, it was like the, everyone's like, this is the craziest thing that's going to ever happen in our lives. We obviously didn't see COVID coming. But what I realize now and what I look at in retrospect is that I think that I was very lucky as I accidental in that time period, but we will look back on that time period and probably 2008 is sort of the marker of when the, the world really shifted. And the way I characterize it is the industrial age ended and we entered a new era. And it sort of sounds like a wild proposition to make, but if you actually read a lot of thinkers today, they don't they don't frame it that way, but they talk about the fourth industrial revolution, the beginning of it, or the connected age or the knowledge age. And I think that the values and the ways of being that were dominant in the industrial age, so things, very Western ideas, things like hierarchy, things like efficiency, top-down command and control, all that stuff, which you know certainly led to the industrial age you know, creating an, you know, a middle-class society, not just in the United States, but around the world, like is important, but also kind of out of date for a globally connected, hyper-fast world. And that we're shifting into this new era. Yeah. I call it the connected age, which is something I borrowed from Seth Godin. It's just like the rules and the values of the way the world works are very different in this age. And the thing that's driving all of this is the exponential increase in connectivity and technology and that it's advancing so quickly at an exponential rate that like the way we do things has to be so, so different. And out of that realization that like the world post 2008 is very different than the world before 2008 has really got me to think about how do we operate in that new set of values and that new set of ways. And, and also I'm speaking in human like eras. So like 2008 plus or minus 50 years, probably in the scheme of things, but to really think about that, this new era really like the rules have completely changed. And this new era that I, you know, I've been calling the connected age. I always say like, I, like a lot of people don't even realize that we've entered a new era. And I, you know, someone like you gets it, even if you don't call it that, cause it's like, oh gosh, you know, anybody who's, who's in entrepreneurship, innovation, creativity can see that the world is completely changed, but it requires a completely different operating system in the way, not just humans inter- engage, but like our entire societies, how we lead, how we come together, how we collaborate. And the big test is, is, is going to be climate change or is climate change, which is how do we work as an interconnected, interdependent global society to actually solve a problem that not one country or one corporation or one individual can solve, but it's a real test of the values necessary to thrive in the connected age. I'm with you. But before we go on, I have, I have a logistics question. I just have to know. So you travel in the world for four years. It's a two-parter. How did you decide where you're going to go? I'm assuming you had some sort of job or worked or whatever. Like, how did that work? How did I pay for it? That's always, that's always an important question. So I'd say two things. I worked for three years before I left and just like, I worked in actually IT, fixed computers, not because I wanted to fix computers, but it paid really well when you're 22 and I knew it was not my passion. So I knew I could quit. 
And so I was just a goal to save as much money as I could. And so I, I had some money before I left. People always ask me, you know, indirectly or directly, how'd you pay for it? And I, I'm very straight. Cost about $20,000 a year is actually not a lot of money if you think about it. So the first year was money I had saved up. The second year I paid for, I got a fellowship from the Rotary, um, that the sort of global civic organization. And they actually paid for me to live in Hong Kong, which I used as a base and flew out all over the place in Southeast Asia and East Asia. And it was really cool to have an apartment <laughs> or, a, or a flat, as they say, in Hong Kong and go see the Philippines, Japan and China, lots of t- trips to China, uh, Southeast Asia. The third year, it's actually really easy to get work in Australia if you're an American under 32. And so I worked on, I, I've lived in a town called Baladonia, Western Australia, population 10. I was number 10. And I was the morning cook and the nighttime bartender for overland truck drivers in the middle of the outback. There's only one road that goes across Australia and we were sort of smack in the middle of it. Paid really well. And then I got a job on a 500,000 acre cattle ranch in, in, in central Australia and worked worked there as the cook. And every time they would ask me to help with the cattle, they did it. It was mostly for entertainment to watch the city slicker. Because <laughs> I, I told them my family was like farmers in Nebraska. And, they, and after the first time I went out, they were like, you are not related to farmers. <laughs> you do not know anything about cattle. Because they heard of Nebraska and the cattle and the state. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You're like, you're not really from Nebraska. We think you're from a big city and you've never seen a cow in your life. And so the the way I figured out where to go was that I tried to find ways to live like the locals, as I sort of said, and where I could find a new, you know, a new, a new, a new adventure, a new way to, to, to experience life. And so like, I mean, one example is like, I met a guy and I was in New Zealand. I met a guy and I said, Hey, I'm traveling around the world. And he said, well, my my brother he is in uh, Fiji and he he's got a whole team that does cataract surgeries for some of the people would you be interested in seeing Fiji and I was like yeah to- totally that sounds great and so got in touch with him and he said well what can you do and I was like well I take pictures and he's like great we need someone to take pictures you come out here you take pictures of our program you help me tell that story you can you can stay here in Fiji on my compound and and be part of the team and so I would go do things things like that but it also led to that notion of connectedness is some, I would meet someone in South Africa and they'd tell me about a thing in China, which would connect me with someone in India. And it really drove home the fact that we're all, you know, we're all, we're all connected in in some ways and that we're all in this, in this together. And unfortunately politics and power and money, I think mess us up. And then tr- truthfully watching the news, you know, is one of the, you know, don't yeah. do that. There was a moment I was in Thailand and there was, there was some protesters had taken over the airport and, and it was a long running feud. If you know Thailand's long running feud, and and I was watching CNN, and I was in the hostel in Bangkok, and I t- and I was it was like CNN Asia, and it was like the world was ending, and I had just spent the entire day walking around the same Bangkok, and I was like, am I in the same Bangkok? Because I think the news, its tendency is because of what sells and what gets clicks, makes us all the b- believe that the world is a is a scary place. But having traveled four years, 40 countries, I will assure people that it's safer, friendly, more welcoming, less expensive than than we are led to believe. And that getting out and actually experiencing and meeting the people is so is so key. And that watching YouTube videos and documentaries and Netflix and reading the newspaper will find it important is not a replacement for going to a place. And getting out of the tourist bubbles too, and actually just meeting yeah. and people and finding ways to engage. I agree. Well, before we go to the the next chapter, how did you know you were done? Like, what was the thing? Did you have a time mark, or you were just like, "All right, I'm ready." 
Well, it, you know, sometimes the universe speaks to you and I had, had been traveling. I mean, the goal was to go for a year. So when, you know, and then it was two years and three years. And when you tell people you traveled around the world for a year, everyone's like, wow, that's incredible. And then you say, oh, I traveled around the world for two years. People are like that, that is, a, that's the most amazing story. You said, I traveled around the world for three years. People are like, oh, he's, he's, he's searching for something. He's lost. And then you say four years and people are like, oh, that guy's, he's lost. And so there was some element of, of not the pressure from folks, but of sort of, this sounds really weird, but getting really bored of like beaches and cathedrals and temples and recognizing that it was time to take all that I learned and seen and and try to apply it into something that was next. It's also a little exhausting to move all the time to new countries and new places. But I always say, you know, the the goal was a year and and it's it's hard to, I mean, four years sounds totally bananas, but I barely, I saw 40 countries and four years of constantly moving. And the world has 193-ish, depending on how you count countries. And it's just the reminder of how big the world is. And I often find in the world, the life I live now, it seems so small and it seems so like contained within the universe I live, the, the probably six blocks of my house or who I can Zoom with. But the world's so massive. There's so much to see and and going out and seeing it reminds you that the world is good and, and grand and there's amazing people doing amazing things everywhere. And, and you know, the commonalities and the connect connectedness are, are there regardless of who you are. I mean, I've, I went into war zones. I went into places where you're not, you know, supposedly they don't like the United States. And it's like, that is not my experience uh, being there with the folks, the people yeah. on the ground. Yeah. I have, I've had the, the, the privilege to do a lot of the travel, especially in developing countries. And, and it helps remind you we're connected. The world is so massive. We, we should, if we can go explore it and to not believe everything you, you read and watch in the news for sure. All right. So you, you come back to the States. I can't remember the timing. I'll just give you a short version to sort of connect to bridge the final part of the story, which is came back to the United States in about 2010 and wanted to launch a social entrepreneurial venture of some kind. I had learned that, or I discovered, I think, through a number of experiences traveling, that entrepreneurship was a pretty powerful force to help people live the life they want to live. And that in a connected age, in a globally connected age, that if you could get people connected to the internet, their ability to suddenly be global, you know, was unbelievable, regardless of who they were or where they came from. And I always say one of the elements of the connected age that differs from the the sort of industrial age is that in the industrial age, corporations were globalized, meaning that a company could find resources anywhere in the world. They could reorganize it and turn it into a product or a service and sell it or give it away to anyone in the world. But in the connected age that we're in now, that right has been afforded to any individual. So if you, as long as they have access to the internet and that there were folks you know, I met in like sub-Saharan Africa who were running entire businesses on their phone and like they didn't even had never had a laptop. Like they just didn't know, they didn't know that they just did on their phone. And it was, it was the realization that also that it's not just the technology. You have to have the knowledge, the know-how, the ecosystem, if you will, the, the, the environment of support. And so could I apply that? And so I originally looked at actually, you know, the places you'd think social entrepreneurs would go in LA, New York, you know, Austin, whatever, and thought that's where I'd end up where all the cool cool, cool social entrepreneur kids were, but actually got invited to go back to Iowa in this town of Cedar Rapids and Cedar Rapids, Iowa is this town of 125,000. And it had been hit by these really massive floods to put it into context. It was in 2008, it was the fourth worst natural disaster in U.S. history. No one died. 
they're Iowans, so they don't like complain and it fell off the news radar pretty quickly. But the city of Cedar Rapids had their entire downtown destroyed uh, underwater, seven feet of water for for days, and they were rebuilding everything. And so there was a businessman that I had known, Chuck Peters, if he happens to be listening, mentor, guide, dear friend now, who said, hey, Mr. Social Entrepreneur, why don't you come help this little town? And what I realized was that LA and New York and and Austin are great, but if you want to be an impact person and want to get involved, you got to get in line because a lot of other people. But then a place like Cedar Rapids, like jump right in. And most towns in America are more like Cedar Rapids than they were, you know, LA, New York. And so moved there and with a business partner, Amanda West, started, we always called it, not just for profit company to try to help build the entrepreneurial community, the ecosystem, if you will, to help the town reinvent, rebuild, rebuild itself after the uh, floods. And so we started a little company called Cedar Studio, really focused on that town. And then, you know, over time, help build that up there in that part. Tony Shea, Steve Case, Paul Allen, who were really interested in how do we build these networks to support innovation and entrepreneurship on unexpected places. So the company, while it used Cedar Rapids, Iowa City, Eastern Iowa as the test lab, started working in communities around the country. And then to just bring the whole thing full circle, started a nonprofit out of that effort, a national network of people building these ecosystems Got it. Went to the Coffin Foundation and said, "Hey, can we get some money? Your foundation to support our nonprofit building this." And and the foundation said to us, "We'll see on the money, but you know, we think this thing that you're you've been doing for a long time and thinking about all the way back to the James Gang is the future of economic and community development. It's a way communities will build their economies, and if we can do this in equitable, inclusive ways, meaning to normally get left off the entrepreneurship conversation, people of color, women, you know, veterans, rural communities, if we could get them involved too, like this is the way we could change sort of the trajectory of communities across the United States and, and really around the world. And so they offered me a job, which I immediately said, no way. I'm an entrepreneur, pirate, renegade, rebel, entrepreneur. I'm, 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 you know, I don't do jobs. I don't do paychecks. I don't do healthcare. And they said, well, if you do this, then join us. You don't have to worry about budgets because we're a foundation. We're literally a group of, 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 you know, an institution that holds money. And I was like, wait, what? And so having been a poorly resourced social entrepreneur for much time, it was a really neat opportunity. And so I joined the foundation and for the last seven years have utilized uh, the funds of the foundation, but even its platform to help connect together folks across the United States, thinking about how can I make my town more supportive of entrepreneurs, innovators, and creatives? And what do you actually do? What are the actual activities that we would do in that place to make everywhere from Kansas City to Peoria to rural North Carolina, a place where people with ideas can plug into the global economy and and participate even more so in this connected age. So that's pretty much my story. Man, that's phenomenal. Andy, before I let you go, you wrote something, I think a few months ago now, and I wanted to read something to you and just, and just have you comment on it, because this is something that I ponder because I actually talk about this in a different way than you do. And so I, I think this could be interesting. So you wrote 20 summers ago, I graduated from college and wanted to become a social entrepreneur. Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, I wanted to change the world. How American of me. Two decades later, one thing I know for sure, and what I'd certainly share with my younger self, is that despite what we're told, one person can't change the world. And no one person ever has. Yeah, it's sort of an anti antithetical to what we're told in American culture about how the world works. And I think what I'm trying to get at and the more I need to 
you know, write and publish on that new blog is that change happens because networks of people get together and reorganize how they behave. And that, well, certain, the American culture likes to tell the story of the hero, the one, it's typically a man, but sometimes a woman who had this genius idea and went off and did it. I mean, and, and sort of the archetypal story is like the Steve Jobs story. Like, I'm sure he was a genius. I'm sure he was super smart. But let's recall that Apple has, like, at this point, tens of thousands of employees. And that if you ask Steve Jobs to build an iPhone, he he cannot. He could not. But that he was able to galvanize a network of people and create a culture that turns out those products. If you take something like, I don't know, you take something like, I don't know, the Arab Spring, which significantly shifted the culture as a social movement. And you realize that there was no one leader of that, that in a connected world, in a connected age, it's networks of people. And the fundamental question I'm thinking a lot about now is what is the role of leaders in those environments? And so in the past, the model has been in the industrial age was very hierarchical, very top down. The, the guy at the top had the plan, pointed, said to the moon. And, you know, organize people and dictated what you do. But in a world where we're hyper-connected, where all of the knowledge is at our fingertips, where now chat GPT can synthesize all the knowledge in a, in a couple seconds, that there's so much knowledge, one person at the top can't possibly synthesize. What is the role of leaders? And there's this great quote from the author Margaret Wheatley that I've been thinking, that I sort of frame a lot of what I, the way I think about it. And the, and, the, and the quote is, how do you lead when no one's in charge? And what that means is no one organization, no individual can solve all the problems in our world or any of the problems in our world, but that leadership requires galvanizing people, connecting together, building networks. As I mentioned, I think a key part is building the right culture. And well, many of us think in sort of the contracts of organizations or businesses that we run, the only way we're going to solve and address some of the biggest challenges and also create, you know, take advantage of some of the greatest opportunities is how do you get many organizations, many individuals, many countries, states, whatever you want to say, working together. And it requires, I think, a different different style of leadership. And it's not like a new, brand new, never seen it before style of leadership. Actually, if you read a lot about sort of a lot of indigenous ways of thinking, you're like, oh, maybe we should just go back to that way of leading. But that, but that this notion of the individual leader that changed the world, I think is actually a false, a false belief. And and maybe to pull it all together, I read this quote the other day. That is sort of I'm thinking about, it. and it's it was this notion that independence is a construct. Independence is a construct. The idea that we're doing this all alone is made up. And you know, even if you and I are talking over the internets on these technology things, and all the people that created the technology and run the technology that allow us to talk, but I think it's that belief that about independence and about individuality that maybe we've taken a little too far to one direction and if i've learned anything in my life we're all connected everything touches everything but in order to work natural collaboration and things people working together doesn't always happen that you know naturally but that it requires people to lead and in an era where you know we can connect globally in an instant it requires different styles of leadership and so that's a lot of what i'm thinking about that's a lot about yeah. what my new growing hopefully growing blog is is about and and maybe i leave it on this is the you know the blog is called how to get out of a traffic jam and it's a reference to the quote you're not stuck in a traffic jam you are the traffic jam and that we all a lot of folks me included sit around and complain about this problem or that problem but is to really recognize 
in an interdependent world, we're all contributing to the very problem we're trying to solve and to recognize the role of our individual selves, especially as leaders, and to address the problem that we're contributing to and that it requires, you know, trying to get out of a traffic jam, like the minute everyone tries to do that, it just becomes more of a traffic jam. How do we work in flock, in collaboration, in communication with, with each other? And I think it's going to take that style of leadership to to address some of the the many challenges and opportunities I think we have before us. And I've, I've been thinking about it for 20 years. I just never framed it as like the role of leaders. And so that's what I'm thinking a lot about now and love to connect to anyone else who's who's into into thinking about that too. Oh man, I love it. And again, we could have had a podcast about that and I, I could have jumped on another fence and disagreed with you just to see where it went. Yeah, cool. um, but we'll, we'll, we'll get back together. But I just want to say, Andy, thank you so much for your insight. I, I'm so enamored and fascinated with the way your brain works and how your story of how you got to where you're at. So thanks a lot for being on the show. Really appreciate the opportunity to, to connect. And I think, you know, the building blocks of change are actually community or is conversations and appreciate having a conversation with you today to share a little bit about thinking and looking forward to hanging out with you next time. Thank you, Andy, for reminding us that we are more similar than we are different. I also want to thank Sleeping At Last for providing our show's soundtrack. For more on Sleeping At Last music, please go to sleepingatlast.com or search for Sleeping At Last wherever you get your music. To Design Of's audio engineer, Steve Wick, who loved this episode so much and made him think of his favorite travel moment. We're 10 hours from the fun park and you want to bail out. Well, I'll tell you something, this is no longer a vacation. It's a quest. It's a quest for fun. Dad, you want to ask for something? Don't touch! I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did making it. If so, please give us a ranking on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Tell others about our show on your social of choice and stay tuned for more Design Of coming soon. Follow us on Twitter at Design Of Podcast and check out our site at rule29.com forward slash Design Of Podcast. See you next episode.